Welcome to episode 13 of The Eclectic Highway. My name is Kelly Senecal, and today I'm thrilled to have with me Dr. Terry Alger from Southwest Research Institute. Now, I've known Terry for many years, and he's definitely one of the most knowledgeable people that I know when it comes to powertrain technologies and internal combustion engines. And you're going to want to stick around to the end of this one. Terry's fun fact is definitely something you can make fun of him for later. And I have an announcement to make before we get into the interview. I know some of you are waiting to hear about the winner from John Haywood's textbook contest, where you will get a personalized message and an autograph from Professor Haywood himself. And the winner of that contest is Claudia Conjo. Claudia is a student in Italy, and I know she's going to be really happy to get this book. So Claudia, I'm going to send the book to Professor Haywood. He's going to write his message, send it back to me, and then I'll ship that book to you. So hopefully you'll get that very soon. Okay, I know you're all ready to hear what Terry has to say, so let's go into the interview. Terry, for listeners who may not know you, can you talk a little bit about your background and your current role at Southwest Research? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm currently the director of the Automotive Propulsion Systems Department at Southwest Research Institute. Uh, our department is primarily focused on uh, the light-duty automotive sector. Uh, we've got activities uh, from SI engine of uh, looking at new high-efficiency applications for engines. We do some product development exercises for some of our customers. Uh, we also do a lot of vehicle testing, so it's actually a, a growing activity for us as the CAFE standards continue to push automakers to be more efficient. Um, we do a lot of work for our clients to help them understand what their products can do for uh, vehicle efficiency. Um, from anything from testing new lubricants uh, for the engine or the driveline to new devices that have lower parasitic losses uh, and new after-treatment uh, components. The other big thing we have is an electrification section. Uh, this section has been around for about 15 years now. We started off our work mostly testing batteries, so benchmarking uh, cell chemistries and trying to understand the impact of changing cell chemistries on uh, battery safety, battery life, and performance. Uh, now we've gotten more into pack level design um, and pack level safety, so uh, we're expanding our electrification efforts. And then the latest activity that we've got is in the connected and auto autonomous uh, vehicle area. Uh, Southwest Research Institute's got a long history of working in robotics and, connect and connected and autonomous vehicles, uh, but our activity is relatively new. Uh, the difference between the two is that while a lot of people have focused on making a vehicle connected or making a vehicle autonomous, uh, my team mostly assumes connectivity or autonomy and then thinks about, well, if you are connected, what can you do to lower your CO2 emissions from that vehicle? Or if you have autonomous features, how can we take advantage of those autonomous features to more efficiently operate the vehicle on the road? A little bit of my background though, I think it's rather unusual for someone in our industry in that um, I did not enter the automotive industry until I was in my 30s. Uh, I, I ended up uh, leaving the Army where I was a, an airborne officer uh, and going back to the University of Texas to get a PhD. Um, and I think that the, the experience I had in, in serving in the Army for 10 years has is, is served me well. Um, in the automotive area. Number one, uh, being in a service part of the industry, it helps you hold your ground with the customers. 
Um, you know, if, if I'm if I'm okay to jump out of an airplane and blow something up, I'm okay to sit there and argue about the price or, or whether this engine's more efficient than another one. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah know, that sounds and, a little then, bit easier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, and the other thing that I uh, I think it's it's taught me is um, understanding how to to really get down to the the crux of a problem and attack it from all sides. So, and I think when we talk as we talk more today, you'll see that. Uh, a big theme of ours here at Southwest Research Institute is really get down in the fundamentals and understand the fundamentals of a problem and then start applying solutions to it that way. Yeah, definitely. And lots of really uh, great work going on at Southwest. And we'll hit on a lot of those things that you brought up already. Electrification, calves. We'll talk about those definitely throughout the episode. But before we kind of get into the meat of the episode, you know, we're going on about six months now of COVID-19, the pandemic, and, you know, it's affected all of us um, in different ways. And I'm just curious, how are you doing, you know, over these past six months and how has COVID-19 sort of changed your life? Yeah, well, so it's interesting. I mean, I think like everybody else in, in our industry right now, obviously COVID and its impact on the economy has been been quite a blow. I know we um, we were having a record year uh, in my department in terms of um, sales and, and net income and things like that. And and the, the shutdowns due to COVID have really, really put a crimp in our backlog. So you know, we're suffering uh, like everybody else in terms of finding enough work to keep our staff busy. Uh, from a personal note, um, we had our own COVID challenges. My youngest daughter actually got COVID. Oh. She tested positive in uh, in June and July. Um, she was actually one of those people that showed no symptoms whatsoever. Um, yeah, she actually had a friend who got who got exposed uh, from his brother. And uh, everyone in our in our friend group got kind of freaked out because they you know they heard my daughter got exposed, but she had no symptoms at all. So we went and got her tested just to prove to everybody that she didn't have it and they could all calm down. And it was a heck of a shock the next morning when they called back and said that she had COVID. It was it was something else. And so we immediately locked her in a room and wouldn't let her out. And um, you know, well, we she she did eat. We had meals. Yeah, um, okay. And we did give her the Wii. Okay, okay. So we did give her the Wii. So she had the Wii, and uh, she came out for meals. And so she stayed there for two weeks uh, until until we were satisfied that she wasn't uh, wasn't infectious anymore. Um, no, no one else in the family got it. Uh, it was really really very strange, honestly. Um, and then, of course, my eldest daughter's a senior. What was a senior in high school, and uh, the, the the shutdowns because of COVID really really wrecked havoc on the end of her senior year. Um, yeah, they didn't get to finish their soccer season. Uh, no end of the year parties. No end of the year graduation. Uh, nothing. So you know, I, I for those of the listeners or anybody out there who had a high school senior last year, it was a. It was definitely a tough thing. Hopefully this year for the seniors, it goes better. Yeah, definitely. But everybody, everybody's healthy now in your family? Everybody's doing well? Yeah. Okay, perfect. For the most part. Okay, so now let's get into sort of the, the engineering aspect here. Now, right off the bat here in the episode, I want to ask you about dedicated EGR. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because, honestly, Terry, when I think of you, I think of dedicated EGR or DEGR. Can you tell us a bit about the story behind DEGR and what you've been able to accomplish with it over the years? 
Yeah, so DEGR grew out of out of the hedge program. And for people who are listening who don't know what it means, um, it's it's basically a way of running hydrogen enriched EGR in an engine. Uh, and and I'm not a real super creative guy when it comes to marketing and PR. Uh, so we ended up building an engine where one of the cylinders out of four is connected directly to the intake manifold and makes the EGR for the engine. Um, and then we can run that cylinder rich and it makes hydrogen and, and hydrogen is a magical fuel. And so when you've got that hydrogen, your, your knock resistance improves, your uh, EGR tolerance improves, everything gets better. Uh, but of course, when you look at it, you're obviously dedicating one cylinder to making EGR. So that's what we called it. And I think if, if it, if I knew that it was actually going to look like it might go places, uh, I probably would have spent some more time uh, thinking up a better name for it, but uh, but it is what it is. So the dedicated EGR concept grew out of the hedge program. And when I say when I talk to you about our our research philosophy here and how we're we're trying to be innovative, um, you know the hedge program has always been a big part of that. Uh, I got recruited to come to Southwest Research Institute by Charlie Roberts in 2003, primarily to work on their high EGR concept for gasoline engines. Uh, at the time, Southwest was not a gasoline engine company. We did almost pure diesel research. Uh, our clean diesel program was huge. Um, but they had an idea that using cooled EGR in an engine uh, could improve. And, and at the time, the big focus was really on medium and heavy duty diesels because nobody wanted to use an SCR system or a particulate trap. So they thought if I could take a gasoline fueled application and use it in a heavy duty environment, I, I could have some better emissions results. Turns out that, that gasoline is still problematic when it comes to a 13 or a 15 liter engine. Um, we never were able to achieve, you know, the, the high BMEP levels you need with those applications. Um, but we started working on EGR. And as we started to work on EGR, uh, we noticed that there were some challenges with ignitability and EGR tolerance and trying to understand how we could actually improve the EGR tolerance of an engine to the point where you could run 25 or 30 percent or more EGR in the engine. So we worked on the flow field. Uh, we did a lot of initial work on ignition systems. I was That was my pet project area for a long time. Um, and, and at some point in the very early 2000s, uh, there was a lot of activity coming out of places like MIT on uh, non-thermal plasma and other means of making hydrogen out of gasoline and using that reformed gasoline to improve efficiency in engines. Now the challenge with those me methods is that they uh, are really very inefficient. You lose about 23% of the heating value of the gasoline right off the bat to heat transfer losses and just kind of second law type stuff when it comes to making the gasoline into hydrogen. Um, so our idea was to make it with the engine and figure out a way to uh, do it on board while we're still getting the power out of it. So if you run a cylinder of an engine rich, uh, if you get to an equivalence ratio of about 1.3, so 30% excess fuel, you can make about 6% hydrogen in the exhaust of that engine. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the first thing we looked at was this thing called rich burn, lean burn, 
where we still wanted to have stoichiometric mixture going into the three-way catalyst, so we ran one cylinder rich, one cylinder lean, one cylinder rich, one cylinder lean. And the EGR coming off of that had hydrogen and some oxygen and you know, carbon monoxide and everything. But it just felt like a waste because you know, half of the hydrogen that you're making or more is going out the tailpipe. Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to, to take care of the NOx and the hydrocarbons that you're generating in the three-way catalyst. Uh, so um, I was working with the, the technician down in the test cell and we were talking about ways that we thought we could capture the hydrogen. Uh, and we, you know, we could have a membrane, we could have a this, we could have a that, you know, is there a separation device we could have? And, and he and I started working on it and we said, well, why don't we just take one cylinder and connect it back and call it a day? Mm -hmm. And so we did that. And, and the first time we ran the engine, I remember it very well. It was on a Chrysler 2.4 liter port fuel injected engine that we had configured to run at a 14 to 1 compression ratio. Um, and, and at the time, we didn't really understand the mixing component of it, but we were able to find a speed where everything worked right. And we could run that engine extremely high in load at, at a pretty low speed um, with that really high compression ratio. And it looked, when you just looked at the data, it was, it was great very high efficiency, um, even on an engine that was not really meant for high efficiency. Uh, everything was wonderful. The problem that we had with it, and this is the part that gets a little amusing for the engineers, is that if you draw a schematic of that engine and show it to somebody, they just laugh. Um, you know, when we first proposed it, at the time, EGR wasn't even considered a great solution to anything. We had a bunch of people in the consortium, they were interested, but that was when lean burn was going to be the savior of all gasoline engines. And so at the time for us to go around saying, no, EGR is better, it'll give you better efficiency uh, while controlling emissions, you know, was we were swimming against the tide just in that aspect. Um, and then when you bring out a drawing that shows one cylinder's exhaust connected right back up to the front of the engine, you know, uh, we start hearing about, you're, you're asking us to drink out of the toilet, uh, that looks like a snake eating its tail, you know, all these things. In fact, um, one company that's, that's actually quite into the concept now, uh, we presented it to some of the lower level technical staff there and, and afterwards they said, you know, this is a really great idea and we're not going to tell you not to pursue it, but do not ever come to our company and talk about this in front of any of our executives because they'll never fund any more work with Southwest Research Institute if you do that. Wow. And so uh, we, we basically had to keep it quiet. Um, we ended hedge one, felt like we had a, a pretty big success with dedicated EGR. When we started Hedge 2, um, we still could not get people to fully commit to the idea that, that we're, we're going to look at dedicated EGR and we think it can work. Um, they still wanted to continue to look at regular cooled EGR. And that's where the, the fortitude of, of uh, maybe being a paratrooper comes in. Is I, you know, I was in charge of the program and I, they all signed their contracts and, and paid their bill and we just said you know what we're going to do a dedicated EGR engine we're going to commit about a third of the budget to showing off dedicated EGR in an application and what it can do and we went forward with it and by the time that particular program was over you couldn't find anybody who would admit to ever being skeptical <laughs> of, uh, 
of dedicated EGR. We, we, we were able to achieve 40, almost 43% thermal efficiency in a Renault port fuel injected two liter engine. So it was, it was quite successful. Yeah, that's, and that's an amazing story. And I wanted to make sure you had adequate time to kind of walk us through that story because I think, I think that's a great story. And it's a, it really shows that when you believe in something, you know, even if people are saying there's no way that can work or, you know, whatever, you stick with it, right? Because if you really believe in it and the science backs it up, then, then usually you get there. Um, so that's an awesome story. Um, you know, when I've seen some of your presentations before, I've seen you talk about embracing the power of and, and that really rings true for me. And I want to have you talk about that because I think our listeners would like to hear about what do you mean by that in the context of powertrain? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to our customers or or a a group about it and I say embrace the power of and, you know, I'll I'll talk about it in terms of, well, it's it's not one technology versus another. You know, um, early on when, uh, when GDI was being adopted, I would go and talk to people about, you know, why GDI is great and cam phasers and cool DGR, and they'd say, well, wh- why would I, which one should I do? Mm-hmm. And my answer is, you do them all, right. right? If you want to have the best application, you do them all. Nowadays, though, when I talk about it, it's more in the context of hybridization. Right. And... And the reason that I I think it's so important is that we're not, we shouldn't see ourselves. I mean, I'm a thermodynamicist. I got my PhD in combustion. I did explosives in the army. I love to set things on fire, right? So, you know, the idea of not ever having an engine or not ever working on an engine again is is not pleasing to me. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, we have to recognize that in order to continue making progress, we can't just we can't just push technologies aside because we're scared of them or uh, they feel threatening. Right. And you know, on the same side, the people that are huge battery electric vehicle proponents need to think about the challenges that a battery electric system brings, and and be honest with themselves and say that you know, for for much of the world or for many, many, many applications, it just doesn't make sense right now. Um, But if you continue down the road of insisting it's either or, you're missing out on an incredible opportunity to really do some good in terms of the environment and reducing both criteria pollutants and CO2 uh, and making a real high-performance, high-efficiency powertrain. Um, There are areas where the electric motor excels and the engine isn't so great especially on the gasoline side, right? Low-speed torque. An electric motor is wonderful for that. Right. Gasoline engine, not so not much. Not so much, yep. Um, on the flip side, uh, when you're making a lot of power in a battery electric-only application, that can be very problematic. They don't last very long. Batteries aren't really great being discharged really quickly. You know, you've got range challenges. Um a lot of a lot of sustained power problems. You know, you, your I squared R losses go up very high in an electric machine when it starts to get hot. So there's areas where an engine could be superior uh, from an overall standpoint to the electric machine, and that doesn't even take into account the challenges that go with with making batteries and and some of the rare earth materials that go into the the all electric things. So if we look at combining the two and allowing the strengths of one to carry the weakness of the other, I think the 
the, the combination of the two can be much stronger than either one individually. Um, we've, got, we've got some work that we've done uh, that shows that some combustion concepts that we would not consider for a standalone power plant, when you combine them in a hybrid electric application, start to make really good sense. Um, even my favorite, Cool DGR, doesn't really meet all the needs if you're running really high EGR levels for a standalone powertrain in a boosted application because of the challenges that come with boosting high levels of dilution. But if you've, if you've combined that high dilution boosted engine that's running at very high efficiencies with an electric machine, you can fill in the holes in the torque curve that are caused by those boosting challenges and some of the transient response problems of high dilution operation with that electric machine and get a great solution while minimizing the cost and the size of the battery pack that you have to put on it. So the battery pack doesn't go to zero, but it's smaller maybe than it would normally be. So the, the combination of the two is very powerful, I think. Yeah, I love that explanation. And I, I agree with you 100% that you know, we need to be improving both and using them together. It's not an either-or thing. Um, so thank you for that. That was a really great explanation. But what about, let's go back to conventional powertrains now. Do we still have room to improve those, and how can we still improve their efficiency, in your opinion? Oh, yes. There's, there's a lot of room, I think, to improve the, the conventional powertrain. I mean, part of the challenge is we have to understand what we're, what we're trying to do with it. Uh, you know, I think when we think of the powertrain, you know, you and I immediately go to the engine. Uh, but for the last couple of years, I've been, I've been leading our driveline activity as well. And when you start thinking about advanced transmissions, we've made a lot of strides in the, in the transmission world in the last, I don't know, decade, uh, increasing the gear count, the ratio. I mean, you know, we've really, really gotten a lot better at mating up a transmission to an engine in order to take advantage of the best efficiency the engine has to offer while at the same time making the transmission better. You know, if you take a look at... Um, some of these more modern transmissions, you can cruise at a very, very low engine speed, um, which is great because, you know, downsizing is good, um, but downspeeding is just as good. And in many applications, downspeeding may be better than downsizing. Um, if you've got a work truck that you may have to operate at high power for sustained periods of time when you're towing something, it might be better to mate that up with a more advanced transmission so that when you're not heavily loaded, you just slow the engine down and you effectively uh, run it at a higher specific torque and, and get better fuel economy out of your engine that way. And then when you need it to pull a trailer or a boat or something down the highway at 60 miles an hour, you've got the big displacement. Uh, maybe it's naturally aspirated, maybe it's only lightly boosted. Um, the durability is good. You know, you can run it at a higher compression ratio than you could run a highly boosted application. And so you get better fuel consumption on those, those work applications. So, that, you know, that's one, one example where, you know, putting the driveline together, there's a lot of opportunities still to improve. On the combustion system side, I think as our electronic controls get better and better, 
we start opening ourselves up to more advanced combustion modes. Um, for this next round of the hedge program, we're going to be looking at Saki combined with dedicated EGR. And, you know, 10 years ago, that would have been problematic. I don't know that our controllers were advanced enough to handle the complexity of both dedicated EGR and spark-assisted compression ignition. Um, but now the processing speeds are better. Uh, we know how to put more complex algorithms onto the ECUs. And I think we feel pretty confident that we can do a good job of, uh, of controlling that kind of an engine. So, so I think there's a lot of room still for the engine to get better. Agreed, agreed. So given that, where do you see the future of internal combustion engines for light duty? So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Let's say, let's look out to 2040. And what do you project the fleet will look like at that time? Yeah, so I, I predict, I think most predictions show, you know, 85% hybridization. Um, I, I would say it might even be higher. I, one, of, one of my thoughts is that eventually uh, most OEMs will stop badging cars as hybrids because it won't matter anymore because everything will be a hybrid. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and so at, at some level or, or another, right, whether yeah. it's a 48-volt mild hybrid or right. a full hybrid like a Prius, you know, there might be some distinction to be made, but for the most part, having a hybrid vehicle won't be a thing because everyone will have some level of electrification on their vehicle. And, and what I think that means is that at some level, uh, we're going to get more creative with our engine technologies. I think we'll see a lot more uh, Prius-style engines, Atkinson cycle, some level of dilution, very high compression ratio, specific power levels that we see today mm -hmm. so potentially less than 75 kilowatts per liter so potentially boosted but maybe only lightly boosted where you're looking at 15 16 bar BMEP type levels of operation and in fact uh, given the cost challenges that come with hybridization we may see a return to port fuel injected engines um, you know if we can achieve the NOx suppression that we want through dilution or, uh, you know, overexpanded cycles, things like that, uh, we may not need the charge cooling effect of GDI. Now, GDI brings a lot of other benefits, and so people may not want to get rid of it completely. Um, but, you know, we could start to see a return to a more simpler uh, style engine, which is, is basically what you see in hybrid vehicles today. So, so what do I think? I think most of the fleet will have an IC engine on it, most being 80 plus percent. Uh, I think almost all of those engines with an IC engine in them though, all those vehicles will have some form of electric device with energy storage on board. Um, and then the balance will be you know, battery electric vehicles. Um, I am not a believer in the fuel cell. I think it's a neat research topic and I don't think we should stop working on it, but uh, I think they've got some serious cost challenges and, and basically, a, you know, if you're going to use a fuel cell, you're going to have to make an electric vehicle. And so the, the cost challenges of having a battery combined with the cost challenges of a fuel cell uh, make a, a very, very expensive piece of equipment. Not to mention if you run them on hydrogen, you've got all the, all the hydrogen storage challenges on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. So thank you for that prediction. I won't hold you to it. Um, 
maybe I will. <laughs> but uh, so what's holding battery electric vehicles or BEVs, what's holding them back from taking over in the next 10 to 20 years? I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the news or check social media, you hear a lot of people saying that BEVs are taking over, um, you know, for sure in the next 10, 20 years. What, what's holding them back from doing that, in your opinion? I think the, the biggest challenge they have is cost. Um, and then the, the not too far behind it is obviously the charge time. You know, if you, if you think about it, I, I live here in San Antonio, and uh, the, the average family income in San Antonio is less than $50,000 a year. Uh, so when you're talking about a car that uh, the cheapest one is maybe selling for $45,000 after, um, after the rebates, uh, that in, and those particular cars are small and maybe not suited for a family of more than three to have, uh, you're talking about a real challenge for some of those people that don't make as much money as, you know, maybe many of the people listening to this, this podcast. So it's one thing for relatively affluent families to buy a, a BEV for their third car um, because they're interested in the technology or they want to make an environmental statement, or, or for whatever reason they have. Um, it's another thing to expect uh, people who can only afford to have one car to buy a car that does not meet all their needs. Um, at, you know, I like to fish, and for me to go to the coast, it's 164 miles to the beach, uh, and then if I drive my car on the beach, which we do in Texas, there's no charging stations on the beach, um, and I can go another 60 miles down the beach. So, you know, where am I gonna where am I gonna find a battery electric vehicle that lets me do that, and has enough room for all my fishing stuff, and my family? Uh, so, you know, it's it's a challenge. I was gonna I was gonna say bring along a generator, but then maybe you can't fit fit your family in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and then the charge time, right? People don't like to be inconvenienced. Um, I think most of the course of human history has been leading people towards more convenient lives. So, you know, uh, I, I also like to read. I used to have to go to the used bookstore and buy books. Now I can have them immediately on my Kindle whenever I want them. Uh, and so most Americans, heck, most people in the world are, are used to the idea that as, my, as I get older and as I move through life and as, as history progresses, my life gets easier, things get more convenient, um, you know, things get better. And, and to many people, having the inconvenience of refueling your vehicle taking, you know, 30 minutes or an hour or longer feels like a step backwards. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that's going to be important. Agreed, agreed. What about autonomous vehicles? I mean, there's a lot of talk about those, and you even talked about calves uh, early on, and we'll hit on that a little bit more later. But don't we need BEVs to go autonomous? There seems to be that seems to be what people think out there in the in the in the world. Is that true? No, not at all. I think you know one of the one of the advantages of a BEV or a hybrid application when it comes to autonomous the the L four type autonomous systems is that those L four systems use a tremendous amount of energy, and so having those batteries on board is a is a nice spot to store it, and you don't. Maybe it doesn't feel as bad as if you're running your engine to power a, a LiDAR or something. And, you know, um, but 
but it's not, absolutely not required. One of the one of the very first things we looked at uh, here as we were considering getting into the you know autonomy for fuel economy type work was if you had an autonomous setup and you were driving a regular gasoline powered car, um, assuming everything's perfect and the autonomous features work so well that you don't have to slow down at an intersection, you don't have to do all this stuff, you just get in your car and you drive at a constant speed to your destination because everything's autonomous and you're all cooperating. Um, you, can, you can reduce your fuel consumption by about 70%. So you might even make the argument that if we had full autonomy, um, they might save the internal combustion engine. Because certainly the advantage of the internal combustion engine, if you combine that with a 70% reduction in CO2, uh, you know, make it look extremely attractive. Now that's obviously a best case scenario. So, you know, I don't know that I would, I would ever want to promise anybody that we could achieve a 70% reduction in CO2, but that's the ceiling. I mean, that's, that's what you're looking at uh, in terms of what, what connectivity and autonomy could provide us with. That's a very interesting take on. I never, I never thought about autonomy possibly saving the IC engine. So that, that, that's really interesting to think about. So let's, let's take that a little bit further and talk about connected and autonomous vehicles, which you alluded to earlier. So what do you mean by that? And how can they work to improve fuel economy and hence reduce CO2? So, yeah, so we, we, we have a, a really large program in that here. Uh, we just completed NextCar, which was funded by ARPA-E. Um, we did it with our partner, Toyota. And we, we took a hybrid Toyota, a plug-in hybrid Toyota. And by just changing some of the algorithms on the powertrain control module and adding some connected features to the vehicle, we were able to improve fuel consumption by a little, little more than 20%, uh, we'll call it real world. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is, when you talk about a connected vehicle, what you're saying is the vehicle has a way of communicating with the environment around it. Mm -hmm. They're either communicating with other cars, so taking information from the cars and giving information to the cars, or they're communicating with the infrastructure around them. So you know, the, the most common things people think about is, I can talk to the traffic light, and the traffic light can tell me when it's going to turn red mm -hmm. or when it, if it's red, when it's going to turn green. Um, it can tell me what's going on in the intersection. As I'm pulling into an intersection, the other cars around me can notify me that they're approaching the intersection too, what their velocity is, what their intended action at the intersection might be. And then my car can help me make a decision what I'm going to do. Because the thing to keep in mind is that you know, the biggest source of loss in, in light-duty automobiles is the brakes, okay? And, and I don't mean that like they're a parasitic drag or whatever. What I'm talking about is every time you have to push on the brake pedal or in a hybrid vehicle, if you, you, know, if you take your foot off the accelerator, they start to regenerate, but they use the friction brakes a little bit too there, right? So anytime you're using the friction brakes, you are shedding all of that kinetic energy that you've, you've built up, right? So you're going at a constant speed. It took a bunch of energy for you to get up to that speed. Then you slow down. Well, for most applications, that just goes into the air as heat and it's wasted. So if you never had to slow down, 
your level of efficiency could be amazing. And what the connected features allow you to do is to optimize your speed profile over a trip. And if you can optimize that speed profile, then you can avoid unnecessarily slowing and speeding up, which is you know the, the number one energy sink of, of a car. So it's really, I think it's a really, when you talk about all the things we can do to make significant changes in our carbon dioxide emissions in a vehicle, that's one where you can do it with minimal changes to the vehicle. You know, RPE challenged us not to change the hardware on the vehicle at all. So uh, we developed a driver's aid that gave haptic feedback to the, the driver as well as, as visual cues to tell them to maintain your speed or, you know, gently accelerate or gently decelerate. Uh, and then we also changed the uh, energy management system uh, on the vehicle. Hmm. Right now, most plug-in hybrids operate in what they call charge-depleting, charge-sustaining mode, where basically you drive all electric until the battery reaches a certain state of charge, and then you operate in a charge-sustaining mode to keep the battery in its safe zone um, going forward. What we did is we said, well, now, now I'm connected, so I know when I'm going to stop. I know my destination, and and our particular system uses used Google Maps and elevation data and traffic light data to predict and and compute an optimal velocity profile over the route that I selected, and the route was selected to minimize energy usage, and then as I'm moving, I'm talking to the traffic and listening to the devices on the road, and I'm deciding whether it's more advantageous for me to consume battery power or use the engine. And so we broke away from the charge depleting, charge sustaining mode and, and went into a mode where we tried to make sure we ran out of battery power. You know, we got to that minimum state of charge, like right, if you imagine it, right as you're pulling into your parking spot at your destination. So you, when you do that, you can really optimize the energy usage in the car. And, and that was good for, you know, several percentage points in fuel consumption. I, I want to say like 7 to 10. Wow. Uh, just optimizing that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, okay, so we're getting close to the end of the technical part here. But I do, before we stop doing that, I do want to get your take on something that I'm very interested in, and that's low or no carbon fuels. Things like biofuels, e-fuels, maybe even hydrogen. What's your take on that? Do you, do you think those are real possibilities for fuels for combustion engines in the future? I think they are. I think the so so we just I think as we think about these fuels, we just need to we get the rid of the idea there's no free lunch. So if you think that it's very important to have a low or no carbon fuel, um, then you're going to have to recognize you're going to have to pay more for it, right? You're not going to you know, it's not going to, it's not like a sham wow, right? It's not, a, you know, a food additive and an industrial cleaner. And, you know, yes, it's a renewable fuel, but it's going to be more expensive than, than petroleum-based fuels. Right. Um, but there are some, some areas. I know many places that have gone to heavy renewables have been suffering in terms of their grid stability. Um, so if you start thinking about some of these renewable fuels that are generated from hydrogen, um, you could... You could consider them a way to fully utilize the renewable energy that's available out there. 
Um, I think that's that's kind of interesting. Um, and then, you know, frankly speaking, ethanol is a, you know, depending on how you look at it, it's, I think people argue whether it's actually low carbon or not, but it certainly is a renewable fuel, right? We, we, we grow crops, we, we cut them down and we turn them into fuel. And then next year, those same crops grow again and we cut them down again and turn them into fuel. So, so we're already making use of some of it and, 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 uh, ethanol has got its drawbacks, but it's also, you know, a pretty nice fuel if you're into, if you're into high octane fuels. So, yeah. And that, uh, I'm pretty sure that's the first time Sham Wow has been said on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> cool. So what do you have coming up? I mean, you have a lot of obviously you've got a lot of really exciting things going on uh, that we've we've hit on in this episode. But do you have anything, any projects coming up in the future that listeners might be interested in learning about? Well, so we are um, we have we have proposed a, a follow on to our next car program that's going to be I think is going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, we're looking at taking the connected, the connected and autonomous fuel economy application that we developed in NextCar One, and uh, and moving it into an L4 automated uh, vehicle. So so now what you're talking about is a fully autonomous application that is also now trying to use its connected and autonomous features. So before it was just let's use the connected features to advise the driver on how better to drive the car and we'll work with the ECU a little bit on how better to manage the energy flow. And now it's truly, we have an autonomous vehicle, we're gonna see if we can uh, make it more fuel efficient through some of these techniques. That hasn't been awarded yet, but we're hopeful you know, that, that, that we'll be able to, to pursue that with some of our partners. Um, Hedge 5 is starting uh, in January. Uh, we've we've got some really interesting stuff going on with microwave enhanced combustion. Um, so that was uh, 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 something we've been working on maybe for for close to eight years now, um, where we are creating a standing microwave field or standing electric field inside the the combustion chamber that accelerates the flame as the flame passes through the nodes of the uh, the electric field. Um, and we've actually got an antenna that works, and we can form the field. And it's looking like it's it's showing some decent results. So we're going to be working on that in Hedge Five. I told you about the Saki plus dedicated EGR, which we think has some some real potential. Um, we're kicking off a new consortium looking at batteries. Uh, so we've been working on battery benchmarking, as I said, for for almost a decade now. Uh, the new program is going to go even more in depth, um, looking at things like thermal management. Uh, one of the one of the cooler areas that I'm for me at least is um, immersive cooling. So, you know, one of the big challenges that battery electric vehicles face is their thermal management. Um, you know, you think a battery, engines appear to get much hotter, and I think temperature-wise they probably do. A battery catch fire before it got as hot as an engine. But uh, for them, being hot is a much worse thing, you know, for the most part. And so uh, we're always looking at ways of improving the thermal management. And, and just as a mechanical engineer, I find it just incredibly eerie to watch someone dunk a battery in what looks like water <laughs> and, and it runs and does all this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's, uh, I, I think it's really interesting to watch, but, but that's a, that's a big topic for us there too. And then we got a lot of other stuff going on. Um, our high precision fuel economy work keeps on going. Uh, you know, for people that think that, um, the auto companies are sitting still. They and their suppliers are working extremely hard 
to reduce the CO2. I mean, we are, we are looking at technologies that would cut uh, fuel consumption by, you know, two-tenths or five-tenths of a percent. Um, and, and people are working hard even for those little improvements. So, so there's a lot of, lot of excitement around that. Yeah. Wow. Lots of really exciting projects coming up. And again, back to embracing the power of and, I mean, you have combustion stuff coming up, you have electrification stuff coming up, and I think that's really important. So I look forward to seeing how those projects turn out. Uh, but let's, let's end the show on a lighter note now. And what's one fun fact about you that our listeners might not be aware of? Okay. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, you warned me that that uh, we need to we need to stay safe for work or whatever. Yeah, um, we do. We definitely. You know, do. I think uh, a fun fact about me. Well, actually, this is it's safe for work, so it's not a, it's not a big deal. But um, you know, when whenever we're around other people, so I you know I've been married. I just turned fifty last week. So happy um, birthday! Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, you know, I know a lot of people when they see me. Uh, often are not quite sure how old I am. Um, I think it's the Italian genes keep me looking young. But um, and my wife and I have been married now for um, 27 years this year. So in 2000, 2021, it'll be 27 years. Uh, and they always want to know where we met. And so for those of you that have ever seen me or, or worked with me, uh, most people, you know, look at me and they see a, a guy who used to be an army officer and he's now a PhD and a, a combustion guy. Um, but before that, I was a, a college student. And um, a fun fact about me that most people may not know is that my senior year at West Point, we all went down to Jamaica uh, on spring break. And uh, there in Jamaica, I was actually crowned the king of Cornwall Beach. And you may ask, <laughs> how does that happen? You know, and knowing that I was in the military academy, you might think that we, we fought a war or something. No, um, I actually won a dance contest and uh, I competed against the, the field and uh, was the most popular reggae dancer on the beach. Wow. Um, yep. And uh, my prize was a, a little plastic crown, a T-shirt and two cases of red stripe beer. Um <laughs> The other noteful thing that happened that evening is I actually met my wife that night. So, um, you know, our, our fun story about us is we actually were those couple, that couple that met on spring break, uh, <laughs> spent some time together, and then actually got married afterwards. So, so that's, uh, that's pretty unusual. That's amazing. Um, you know, I've had some really good fun facts so far, but that's definitely up there. So yeah. next time we meet, so hopefully SAE happens in April. Um, we need, I need to see that reggae dancing. We'll have to figure out where we can go to show that yeah. off. Okay, um, yeah. Well, not that we'll I'm going to do, do it, but you, you can definitely do it. So, Terry, that, this has been really awesome. I always have a great time talking to you. You're so knowledgeable about all these topics. And so thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with, with me and with the listeners. And I do really look forward to seeing you again in person sometime soon. And I hope that we can hug some engines together. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I won't wear my good clothes when we go to hug the engine, though. That, okay. That already bit me once. All right. Thanks a lot, Terry. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, that's it for episode 13 of the Eclectic Highway. 
I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. I had a great time talking to Terry, but unfortunately I'm going to have images of him dancing on the beach in my head for quite some time. Now, if you like the show, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much any place where you listen to podcasts, you can grab this show. So until next time, guys, remember, the future is eclectic.